0: God's compassion for the vulnerable is our topic today. It is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And Monday will mark the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Forty-five years ago, the Supreme Court legalized elective abortion. And they forced every state to give every woman the free access to abort their children their pre-born children on demand. And that decision has now provided legal protection for killing, according to best estimates, over, 40 mi- over 60 million babies now. So there's no question over what abortion is. Even scientists and medical professionals who support abortion do so with full knowledge that abortion terminates human life they just question the baby's rights and in the face of this evil we need guidance on how to respond and that's my aim to compel you to respond by showing you god's compassion for the vulnerable but before i do that let me begin with what's of first importance which is the gospel of jesus christ I'm teaching with full awareness that there are people in this room who have had an abortion. Or you've counseled a girlfriend to have an abortion. You feel shame and guilt. You're angry at others who deceived you growing up. Gnawing memories depress you. If I would have only known, you might say to yourself, well, there's good news for you. Just as there's good news for all of us. Abortion is murder. But the good news is that God forgives murderers and transforms them. Paul once breathed murder against the church. But this same Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. "...of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life." So God knows your rebellion. God knows your mess. And He sent His Son to save you still. He loved you by sending His Son to die under the punishment you deserved, whether that was for abortion or anger, whether that was for murder or murmuring, whether that was for bloodshed or boasting. Today may remind you of the true nature of your sin, but hear this truth again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. That's the only kind of people He saves. Sinners. Even more, He saved you as you were to display His perfect patience. That's the goodness of the Gospel. God takes your waste of a life and He makes you a theater upon which He displays the drama of His extravagant mercy. That's what your life is when you're in Christ. A display of God's perfect patience to others in need of salvation. That's what's of first importance this morning. Second, my focus today is not to establish what the Bible implies about when life begins. Nor is it my focus to show why abortion is morally wrong. Two years ago we addressed both Questions, and we concluded as follows From the moment of conception, preborn children are moral and legal persons who have intrinsic value as God's image bearers. Therefore, we should do all we can to nurture and protect them, and any deliberate act in the life of a preborn child amounts to murder. If you want the biblical data on that, that sermon is available. Online. Today's message complements that conclusion. This message assumes that life begins at conception and abortion is morally wrong, and then it's going to go further. God's compassion moves us to act on behalf of the preborn. In other words, the biblical worldview is not simply avoiding abortion. That's true. It's just not in, I mean it's just yeah it's just not complete. True Christianity does something. It acts for the sake of the vulnerable. Avoidance didn't abolish the slave trade. The relentless pursuit of William Wilberforce type Christians did. True Christianity acts to protect image bearers, and that's more so our focus. And then third, I'm going to read several texts today from the law of Moses, and for some appealing to the law might be a stumbling block, someone might object, whoa, 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 I thought we were no longer under the law, but under grace. And that's wonderfully true. Romans 6.14 says exactly that. But that doesn't mean the law has no place for the Christian. It's still the Word of God. Paul says elsewhere that it's holy and righteous and good. And more significantly, the apostles quote from it rather often when instructing the church. What do we make of that? It's certainly not legalism. They're not using the law to earn God's favor. It's also not resorting back to the Mosaic Covenant. After all, Christ fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant and brought for us the new and better covenant in His blood. Rather, it's a matter of how the law functions for us. The answer to how can be seen in the way the apostles interpret the law in light of Jesus fulfilling it. So it's not a matter of choosing which laws apply and which laws don't, but how those laws are fulfilled and brought to their truest intent in Christ and in our union with Christ. The apostles teach us to use the law both for prophecy and for wisdom. It's prophecy in that it points to Jesus, our true sacrifice, our true Meeting place, our true temple, our true Passover, our superior priest, and so on. But the law is also used for wisdom in the Christian life. God promised to create a new people who internalized His law such that it shaped their moral outlook and their actions toward others. You see, the law reveals God's character. And the more we internalize God's law in Christ, always internalize it, in Christ and by the Spirit, the more we will reflect God's character. Because the more we will know Him. So when I read from the law in just a minute, don't throw up the legalism flag. Ah, ah. Don't think we're dismissing the new covenant. We're actively pursuing what the new covenant realizes a people so morally transformed by God's Word and by His Spirit that they reflect God's character together and in the world. So one aspect of God's character that's going to be our focus is God's compassion for the vulnerable. I want to read several passages, note just a few things in passing, and then I want to parallel the vulnerable in these passages with the vulnerable around us, and the vulnerable in the womb will be our primary Focus, but it'll be obvious that the biblical vision of God's compassion touches many more types of vulnerable people. So, first stop, let's turn to Exodus 22. Exodus 22. Now, I've got them on the screen for you again today. Now, it's important to remember that God saves His people out of slavery. And then he gives them the law. It's not, you obey me first and I'll get you out. It's, I got you out. (laughs) Now you're with me. Let's see how we live. So his word, the word of God, is to enter this community, Israel, and it's to profoundly shape every aspect of their life. And one aspect is how the people are supposed to treat Israel. The vulnerable in their midst. And he says this in verse 21 You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lenderer to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So we got sojourners, widows, fatherless or orphans, and the poor. These are the vulnerable ones in Israel. These folks lacked security and protection. They didn't have welfare or CPS or Medicaid or Social Security to lean on. Israel was to look out for these vulnerable people. They were to act rightly toward them and not take advantage of them in their helpless situation. And the Lord gives three reasons why. One, Israel must remember their own hopeless situation. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, don't forget your vulnerable state when I rescued you, when I provided for you. You remember Pharaoh's unjust whip. And I came to your aid. That's the idea. Two, God fights for the vulnerable. God fights for the vulnerable. He says, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill. He is not a God who is aloof. God sees injustice and He will judge. Three, God is compassionate. I will hear, He says, for I am compassionate. And in the context here, this neighbor's cloak is like a poor man or a poor woman's cloak. She sleeps in at night. You take her cloak and she's cold, I'll hear her cry, for I am compassionate. Compassion isn't just a matter of sympathy, it's action to help those in suffering. God is just. He treats people without partiality, but even more, he's compassionate. He identifies with those in suffering and he lavishes his kindness upon them to help them in suffering. You see how the law is teaching us about God's character here. All right, go now to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, verse 6 and 7. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in His lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Again, God's, you see god standing for the vulnerable. The poor were particularly vulnerable to mistreatment in lawsuits. Right? The rich could come in and maybe bribe the judge so that he doesn't weigh the evidence equally. And he accuses the poor man. The poor man can't defend himself. So God didn't tolerate such partiality. But something else here is that it's evil to kill the innocent. That's what comes out here. It's evil to kill innocent people who cannot defend themselves. Now, note that while we turn next to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verses 15 and 19. It says, The Lord set His heart in love on your fathers, and He chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day, So they didn't deserve his election. He chose them by his own free mercy. Then he says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, do you hear this? The new heart, it's a circumcision of the heart, the new inner person, the new heart that loves God, will reflect God's justice and... Show God's love in our dealings with the vulnerable. That's the connection. God executes justice. God loves the sojourner. Therefore, you love the sojourner. Or to state it negatively, if you mistreat the vulnerable, if you just let people trample all over them, and have their way with them, if you refuse to execute justice for them, you've got a callous, stubborn heart that doesn't know God as He truly is. Deuteronomy 24 is next. Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 to 19. And it adds another element that was implicit in the other passages but becomes explicit here. says you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and here it is the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. And then it goes on to speak about ensuring the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner have enough to eat. So again these people lack freedom, security, and protection but it's Israel's duty to look after them even seek their benefit and why not just because you were a slave but also and the Lord your God redeemed you in other words when they were helpless without freedom without protection without hope God intervened God helped them God saved them he didn't just send them words be warm and be filled. No, he swooped in and he did something about their situation. And now they too would to reflect the same compassion to the helpless. That's how it always works in Scripture. God stuns his people with incredible compassion and mercy. And in that, in turn, compels them to show incredible compassion and mercy. Job is commended for this. Uh, for his righteousness. Uh, And listen to what that righteousness entails. So if you asked, what's what's it look like for a man in Israel to reflect God's character in the assembly? Well, here's one picture. So this is Job 29, 11 to 17. I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth." Incredible picture there, he's rescuing the, these vulnerable people, the widow, the orphan, and, 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 and so forth, are pictured here as being devoured by beastly, beastly, unrighteous people. And he comes in and he breaks their fangs. So such compassion for the vulnerable is the very outworking of God's righteousness in this man's life. If you know anything of Israel's history, though, Israel doesn't emulate God's compassion for the vulnerable. Zechariah, Isaiah, and others, they say that great anger from the Lord came upon Israel, and the sins they're most often referring to is their lack of compassion for the vulnerable. That's why they went into exile. They were honoring God with their lips. And that relationship was doing nothing in terms of how they interacted with the widow and the sojourner and the orphan. He sends them in the exile. But there's still this hope. God spoke of another Israelite who would take up the cause of the vulnerable. Isaiah 11.4 With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Isaiah 61.1 God would anoint him to bring good news to the poor and send him to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Jesus enters the picture and applies those verses to His own ministry. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus' compassion for the vulnerable. The poor have the good news preached to them by Jesus. He has compassion on the crowd because He looks around and He sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. He says, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind... On the eve of His crucifixion, He reassures the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you fatherless. I will come to you, He says. John 14, 18. And then finally, we reach the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the cross is the ultimate display of God's concern for the helpless and the vulnerable. Without Christ's coming, we're helpless. We lack the purchasing power to get ourselves out of the slavery to sin. We're all vulnerable to the devil's oppressive schemes as he holds the power of death over our lives. We're all orphans in that we don't have God as our true Father. And we're powerless to change the situation. But in his compassion, God sends Jesus to pay the price. God sends Jesus to destroy the devil. God sends Jesus to adopt us into God's family. In other words, it's through Jesus' cross and resurrection that we see the ultimate display of God's compassion for the helpless and the vulnerable. And now, in light of that redeeming work, we're compelled to show compassion for the helpless. So just like God's compassion getting Israel out of Exodus, out of Egypt, I mean, through the Exodus, and telling them, because of that, this is how you live with the vulnerable, In the same way, the cross of Christ is our exodus. And He has brought us out of slavery. And now He's telling us, based on that work for you, this is how you treat the vulnerable. And that's why we get texts in the New Testament like James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that means going to them with the intent to help, to give them aid, and to fight for justice in their situation. So it's it's more so along the lines of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, where we make other people's needs our own. We take up their cause. It's not love to just sit back and say, well, I didn't do him any evil. Right? That's what the priest and the Levite who chose not to help but to go the other way, thats both of them could have said, I didn't beat him up. I didn't do him any wrong. That's the way self-righteousness talks. I didn't do anything. Exactly. You were no neighbor because you did not love the man. Those who truly know God's love will help alleviate the distress of those who cannot pay us back and we will work for justice for those who cannot defend themselves. That's the biblical portrait of God's compassion. So what does that have to do with preborn image bearers? Well, everything... The sojourner and the widow and the orphan and the poor, all of them are weak, vulnerable, and unable to defend themselves in the face of injustice. Preborn image bearers stand among the most vulnerable in our society. They cannot defend themselves, they cannot run from the abortionist's instruments. They have no voice to argue their right to live and tell the mother not to stop their heartbeat. They're innocent people in society, and therefore it's wicked to kill them, and even more wicked to legalize their killing. One writer said that the test for any the test of morality for any society is seen in how they treat the helpless. Freeborn children are weak, innocent, and unable to help themselves in the face of injustice. So what does God's compassion compel us to do for these kinds of people? It compels us to act on their behalf. It compels us to fight for their lives, to execute justice, to to identify with them in their suffering, and to work for their good. Michael Spielman puts it this way, By explicitly commanding us to care for those whose livelihood is in jeopardy, so think here of the orphan and the the widow, By by explicitly commanding us to care for those whose livelihood is in jeopardy, God is implicitly commanding us to care for those whose lives are in jeopardy. So let me give you a few ways we can do this. And as I do, hear me say this, none of us can do them all. Right? Sometimes I go through all these lists and you're like, I can't do this, I've got kids to take care of and homeschool. And you can't do them all, but all of us can do some. Number one, compassion will move us to pray. Compassion will move us to pray. Pray for God's justice to prevail. As Christians, we can be confident that God's justice will prevail because God demonstrated his justice on the cross of Christ and then he raised Christ from the dead, assuring the world that by this man will come a judgment. God's justice will prevail. And we can pray to that end. David himself prays this way for the vulnerable in Psalm 10. Listen to this prayer. This is after he's described how the wicked are treating the vulnerable. And he says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. You note mischief that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Pray that God will topple the abortion industry. Pray God will bring justice for the innocent. Pray that the unborn are spared their lives and that the wicked are exposed and brought to justice. And pray also for pregnant women. Pray the Lord would intervene in cases where a woman is callous to the life in her womb and more concerned with her convenience. Pray for the Lord to protect other women who feel trapped, with no way out, forced. Pray women would be protected from the fangs of wicked men. Pray also about ways you can enter their lives for good. Your prayers may seem like nothing, but God is great. He is able to do good things. We've been uh, in this church 12 or 12 years now. One of the things I remember when I first came here was Dale very often praying for the unborn. And I can't help but think the Abortion clinic down Las Vegas Trail and right there at Las Vegas Trail in 30, it's shut down during the time. And was that a result of Dale's prayers? Two, educate yourself and others educate yourself and others as some have put it education before legislation in a day where information on any subject is just a swipe away get educated like go to websites like abort73.com abort73.com and just read for a couple of hours Your kids go down for a nap this afternoon? Just read during their nap time. Just a few articles. They're excellent. Get answers to questions about abortion, medical research, pregnancy centers available, counseling services, how well the church is responding and how well it is not responding. Educate yourself so you can pass on informed answers to others. And if you don't like to read, watch the videos. They got videos. You can watch the videos. Some of you do not like to study. You think of study and you're like, ugh. Think of study as an act of compassion for others. I don't care what subject it is. It doesn't just apply to this subject. Study is an act of compassion for others, to understand people and where they're coming from and worldviews and how these clash with Christianity. Study will help you identify with them and then learn various ways to act and speak. If you have children, teach them that God values life from conception to natural death. From the womb to the tomb. If you have pro-choice friends, you need to challenge their views. Expose the darkness, Ephesians 5 says. Don't pretend this doesn't matter. That's what children of light do. They expose the darkness. Some of you are really good writers. Use that gift to write articles on your blog or the church's blog or Facebook and spread the word about the evil of abortion and the sanctity of, of human life. Promote things regularly on your your Facebook account like the Pregnancy Help Center or or pass out good books that, that help people see the truth. Three, renounce the abortion culture and the attitude behind it. Renounce the abortion culture and the attitude driving it. Part of the church's mission to the vulnerable we see, on the one hand, you go and you visit the orphan, you care for the widow, right? And then on the other hand, and keep yourself unstained from the world. That's what he says in James one twenty-seven. Now that means the obvious, like choosing not to end the life of a pre-born child. But it also means not participating in the less obvious, like not using birth control methods that are fashion. Or not using artificial reproductive technologies... that threaten the sanctity of life. If human life begins at conception... we should do all we can to protect... the conceived but preborn child... at every stage in development. But there's also an attitude... driving the abortion culture. And really... we need to get this... really it's the same attitude... that drives genocide and racism, and road rage, and verbal abuse, and other things like that. And that attitude goes something like this. We dehumanize anybody who stands in the way of my plans, and my wants, and my comforts. We dehumanize anybody who stands in the way of my plans and my wants and my comforts. There's a book written by Joseph Conrad called The Heart of Darkness. It illustrates this attitude. There's this man named Kurtz And he sets himself up like a god over a tribal people living in the Congo. And some people come to visit him and they notice that surrounding his house are heads of people impaled on stakes. Not only had he enslaved them, But that's how he treated anybody who got in his way. The point of the book, though, is that the heart of darkness isn't a place in the Congo. The heart of darkness is that inward disposition that pretends to be God and dehumanizes anyone who gets in our way. We must renounce such attitudes in our own lives and not just point the finger at the pro-abortionists, the pro-choice people, while we're living this in other ways. Four, support crisis pregnancy centers that are pro-life. Support them with finances, support them with services. Right, create margin in your schedule to help women who come to these centers. As a church, we've chosen to, help, to, to work with the Pregnancy Help Center of Fort Worth, which is off of Camp Bowie. Dale is on the board there. We, we've got them as a line item in our budget, so we give money to them each year. And some of you give your time to assist with sonograms or counsel the women or just go and help clean the facilities. In fact, our own Mary Ledbetter... Larry, <laughs> sorry, Mary. Mary Ledbetter will be speaking to us uh, this afternoon. She'll give you a little teaser at the end of the service and then she's going to be in the fellowship hall right after the service and I encourage you to bring your lunch. If you didn't bring lunch today... Go get lunch and come listen to, to hear what God is doing through her there. And I asked her if I could share this, but and she'll share more about it with you as well in there. But Mary is one among us who's had an abortion. And God has radically transformed her life. And her labors are worthy of our imitation as a church. Five, be a safe haven for pregnant women and their babies. Be a safe haven for pregnant women and their babies. Here's what I want. Here's where I want to start expanding the application beyond just babies in the womb. Babies in the womb are vulnerable, but so are many women who are wrestling with whether to have an abortion. Some were raped and now are scared to death of raising a child alone. Some made poor life choices and aren't mature enough to care. Some are callous about life altogether since mom and dad never treated them like a person to begin with. And some have known nothing but poverty and fear the costs of raising a child. Whatever their stories, whatever their background, they're looking for hope and help. And the church should be the first to offer them both. Hope in the gospel and help from God's people. The church should provide a context for healing and restoration for victims of rape. Some churches even offer assistance programs for victims of rape where sisters teach Women, various trades that they can do from home. And that income not only provides an alternative to welfare, but also allows the young mothers to work from home so that they can then raise their child, finish school, and so forth. The church can also provide help for those who are pregnant and facing the mountain of motherhood and and counsel to those women running away from motherhood. To abortion. So we should even be ready and available to adopt their children when they come ask us for help. I mean, when we when we ask them, have you considered adoption instead of abortion? There's got to be a real sense of conviction, we're stepping in to get the baby. We're going to adopt. Or we're going to work really hard to find that baby. adoptive family. Some of us may not be able to adopt. But others of us can. I was thankful just thinking about the seven children within Redeemer who have been adopted. And just stunned by the fact, this is a real statistic, that in America... If you look at the ratio of evangelical churches to children, if one if 3 churches adopted one child and those 3 churches committed to the family that adopted that child, we'd drain the foster system tomorrow. We got 7. There's probably more. If a woman comes who's had an abortion, we who know God's forgiveness should be the first to extend mercy to them. The church should be a home for women grieving over the consequences of their actions. Just like the church was a home for all of us when we were grieving over the consequences of our actions. We're the only institution that can hold out true and lasting hope for them in the gospel message. Again, we tell them Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you trust in Him, He's going to make your life a theater where He can display His mercy for others. Six, let God's compassion for the vulnerable shape your political action let god's compassion for the vulnerable shape your political action in a democratic context we as a people can engage in in things at the political level we can influence things we can support those leaders whose principles and policies best reflect compassion for the vulnerable but we can do more than just vote for them. We can persuade others. We can write. We can work hard. We can send money. We can do things to, to help people embrace policies that reflect God's compassion for the vulnerable. And it's not just in relation to the unborn. It's going to be thoroughly pro-life. It's also in relation to things like Promoting equal treatment of all ethnicities. It's also in relation to supporting the orphan and women in difficult places. It's also in relation to refugee care as they flee life-threatening conditions. It also relates to dreamers. That's the scenario I'm learning more about as the days pass. It's all over the headlines. And I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I have to say that the solutions of some Christians are hardly informed by the biblical vision of God's compassion for the vulnerable. And even less by His justice in some cases. Ask better questions, church. Church. Have the people shaping the law truly understood the people in that situation? Do they know their names? Do they know the color of their eyes? And does the law uphold justice for the vulnerable? Will the law end up punishing the innocent? What plan is in place to protect the life? That's what these passages were teaching us today. And then finally, never forget your helpless condition when the Lord saved you. Never forget your helpless condition when the Lord saved you. Right? You see how many times throughout the law he repeated this? For you were once over there. For you were a sojourner. For you were like this when I swooped in and... Delivered your tale? That's a paraphrase. (laughs) And the apostles don't let us forget it either. How many times throughout Paul's letters does he recall where you, you once were this and you once were that and God saved you. Therefore, you do this. So regularly we need to be reminded of how depraved and desperate we were before God saved us. And the point is both to humble us and to magnify God's great grace. So in coming to the Lord's Supper this morning, this is a perfect opportunity to remember God's compassion toward you, remember where He found you, And what he rescued you from. And then as you eat, consider how his great compassion toward you might be compelling you to act on behalf of the vulnerable. Ben, you want to come lead us?